Cue the lightning sound effect. Because we are back. This is your host, Colt Gunnarsson, here with my co-host, Haley Turner. And we are recording new episodes. As you may or may not have noticed, we did take a little hiatus for a while due to unforeseen circumstances, but we are back and ready to make some new spooky episodes for y'all, just in time for that spooky season. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in December of 2021. Please enjoy. We are releasing it now, and we'll be recording new episodes going forward. Let's go! Please have the happiest of Halloweens! And welcome to Fear of the Year, the podcast where we go through the eerie evolution of the horror movie genre, one guts-covered, blood-splattered year at a time. I'm your host, Colt Gunnarsson, here with my co-host and girlfriend, Haley Turner. Hey. Hey. <laughs> welcome to the show. How can I help you? In this episode, we are covering... 1916 through 1918 and we are getting ever closer to just going one year at a time but given the small amount of movies coming out in the horror movie genre in this period we do still need to cover a few years to have enough for a full episode but hopefully probably we should start going just one year at a time by next episode but we shall see it depends on what is available fingers crossed Yes, I am super excited for today's episode. We have lots of fun stuff to cover and get into, but just a short heads up before we jump into things. A few parts of today's episode are going to be very speculative because there are some lost films, partially lost films, kind of things we knew existed, but we can't really watch them or cover them, but they still are interesting nonetheless when covering the full a timeline of horror cinematography. So we're going to be a little more like, hey, this might have been cool, you know, just kind of mentioning some stuff. It's a um, lot of teasing this episode. So it's yeah. just kind of like, yeah, you want that movie? No, exactly. it doesn't exist anymore. I'm sorry. Yep. And there are, yeah, a few of them just look like they would have been so cool if we still had the full thing today. So film All lovers right. can dream. Well, before we jump into things, I thought we'd have a nice little warm up discussion, a little chitty chat. Uh, about some horror movies we have seen recently. So if you want to start us off, what's a a movie that uh, you watched in the last little while? Recently, we went out and saw Antlers, as a matter of fact. Ah, yes, Antlers. A lot of hype for that movie. A lot of throwing around the name of Mr. Del Toro. But Mm -hmm. it is just another production that he produced versus actually directed. Just kind of like they did with the whole scary stories to tell in the dark thing. So, a little bit of overhype in that department. Mm-hmm. Cool practical and special effects, but yeah, storyline was... It fell flat. 
The story fell flat for me for sure. Like the characters, like hardly even have uh, a arc, like an arc at all. It kind of just ends where it starts. It felt a little disappointing to me. I did really love the Wendigo though, like the um, the effects they did for it, and especially the practical effects look really fucking awesome. And I think that part where like. No, this isn't really that spoily, but it like turns around and it's like wearing someone's face. I'm pretty sure that was, if not all practical, like mostly practical. I don't know, but that looked fucking cool as shit. Props for the practical and special effects team, but story writers go back to the drawing board. Yeah, we also watched uh, 13 Ghosts again recently. Ah, good revisit. I do love that movie. I gave it a 9 out of 10. The ghosts are good. The ghosts yes. are always good. That movie scared the absolute piss out of me the first time I seen it. I was—I don't even think I was a teenager yet. It's all about the jackal. Yeah, that shit fucking... Ugh. Anything that's invisible. <laughs> anything that's invisible and that can scratch and eat you, that's scary to me. Um, I also watched uh, a Christmas horror story I was telling you a little bit about recently. Mm. I've never really watched many Christmas horror movies. And it's kind of interesting. It came out in, uh, what was it, uh, 2015. And it's kind of weird. It's kind of like an anthology. It's a bunch of different storylines, but they're all going on at the same time. And Those are my favorite kind of movies. It was all right, but uh, I my favorite part about it was the fucking North Pole gets like a zombie infestation, like breakout. Oh, and, yeah. And all the elves turn into zombies and try to kill Santa and shit. I'd play and that as a, a video game. And yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be a great game. And I, uh, yeah, it has a little fun twist at the end, too. It's, it was okay. It was, it was hmm. a decent movie. Speaking of anthologies, also recently watched John Carpenter's Body Bags. Oh, yes. Yes, we did and watch Body Bags. That was a good one. You know, that was a really fun one. I liked the surprise twist at the ending. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's another anthology that um, we watched and fuck. It's, uh, I have a great story, okay? So, uh, some, so some people's girlfriends might sleepwalk, right? Or whatever. But my girlfriend sleepwatches movies. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty amazing. So she, hey, been I up, still remember everything. Yeah. <laughs> She'd been up since, uh, like what, like 7 a.m.? Yeah. And we didn't even start the movie till like past midnight or something. Yeah, so was she like was already super tired. And we kind of cuddled up on a love sack. And she started snoring, so I started being like, <laughs> babe, if you just want to watch it some other night, it's fine if you want to just go to bed. She was like, no, it's fine. I can watch it. So I'm just watching it next to her, and she starts doing this. She's like nodding off like. <laughs> and then her head will come up real quick and look at the screen and be like, oh, that's crazy. And then she's just right back. <laughs> and she came in and out a few times. Well, so. well. When you did ask me about it, did I know what was happening in the movie? Huh? Huh? I'll give you that. You seems like you got enough info to understand what was going on. So yeah, it's a skill I've inherited from many generations of Turners. <laughs> At least knowingly, my grandpa. That's how he would watch everything from golf to old western movies. So <laughs> just take micro naps. Don't knock time. on my jeans. We got it. <laughs> Nineteen sixteen. All right, well, let's go ahead and jump into things. Again, we are covering 1916, 17, and 18 today, and we will start things off here. So I'm going to run through 1916 
a lot of these are kind of just honorable mentions because they are either mostly lost or entirely lost. So I'm just kind of do a quick, uh, going to do a quick rundown on these and we will move forward. So starting off in 1916, there was not one, but three episodic horror series released over the year. A buzz began to grow four serial films for moviegoers at the time, and theaters started liking the idea of maintaining a regular audience. And this goes to show that the horror series was implemented very early on. So there's three of these we're going to go through here, and there are two that are mostly lost, and one that is completely lost. But if you think about it, it makes sense because that is a lot more reels of film to keep track of over a hundred plus years than maybe like one or two that it takes for a feature length film. That's like a lot of freaking film. So easy it to lose. Really it really is bittersweet though. Cause yeah. one of them in particular, I would have absolutely loved to see the entirety of. Oh yes. Same here. So the first one we're going over is called homunculus directed by German filmmaker Otto Rippert and written by Robert Reinert. In Homunculus, a group of scientists produce a living human child. This Ew. creature is a human in every way, except that he cannot experience love. Having discovered his origins that he has no soul, he takes revenge on mankind by instigating revolutions and becoming a monstrous tyrant. I really can't blame the kid, though. I mean... You were born yeah. without the ability to love. Like, that's kind of a shitty thing to so, pick out of your gene pool. Damn. Yeah, it's like, Daddy, why don't I have a soul like you? <laughs> it's because you were born a redhead, kid. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love to all the redheads out there, though. <laughs> Big love. <laughs> so, this series originally consisted of six one-hour-long episodes and was among the most popular films in Germany during World War One. Today, only two episodes are available on YouTube of the six. However, the Munich Film Museum has done a 200-minute-long restoration containing film from all six parts, and it's a little bit more of a comprehensive story. It kind of tells the whole thing with bits and pieces. But it's not available online anywhere, so we just have the two episodes to go off of. Uh, as far as I can tell, the remaining episodes are part one and part four. But I don't speak German, so don't quote me on that. Um, but I'm pretty sure that's what remains on YouTube to this day. And while this film series isn't particularly spooky or frightening, it's kind of more of just a melodrama for the most part. Uh, it is still considered to be horror adjacent because it is one of the many, quote, artificial man movies that were coming out uh, in this time period. And they're all kind of these retellings of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Bunch and of mad scientists running amok in the film industry. Yeah, and it's kind of all centers around this fear of technology creating an immoral or soulless being. And as like science is progressing, it makes people scared. You know, back then it was like, oh. Don't don't put those chemicals together. You're you're gonna make an evil monster like in that book. Everything has to have a soul. Everything. Everything. Considering it is mostly lost and intertiles are not in English, it is difficult to actually piece any of the story together. So it's essentially like I was mentioning earlier, just an honorable mention, but still kind of interesting to mention nonetheless. The second series this year, and this is the one that. I'm pretty bummed is lost, and you are as well as you're mentioning. It deserves a remake. 100%. I will do a remake. <laughs> 
It's called The Mysteries of Myra, directed by Leopold and Theodore Wharton and written by Charles W. Goddard. In The Mysteries of Myra, Myra Maynard's family is cursed by a devil-worshipping cult called the Black Order, and she is marked for death by black magic on the eve of her 18th birthday. Dr. Payson Alden, an occult detective, uses science to try and defeat the cult's evil spells and is assisted by his friend Haji, a Hindu mystic. During the course of this 15-episode serial, Myra is assaulted by astral demons, a fire elemental, a, quote, thought monster brought to life by malicious intent, and other supernatural menaces. Levitation, crystal balls, automatic writing, mediumship, witchcraft, and a golden idol come to life all play part in this story of a clairvoyant teenager and the feared black order that pursues her and the black order is real similar to alistair crowley gotta say Mm -hmm. has the hat and the hand pose and everything and that's one of the only stills you get of them yes you can tell there was a lot of influence uh from crowley in their uh how they did up the cult in the film so as the synopsis says there are 15 episodes in this series but there are only bits and pieces of the episodes left to watch to this day there is a reconstruction of episodes one through six on youtube which uses both film and still images to reconstruct the story so that at least gives a pretty good idea of the vibe of the show uh but it's you know just pictures and mostly pictures and then kind of some clips of film here and there but There also are some short clips of other episodes, and I think actually a one full episode on YouTube as well. And of everything we're covering today, I really wish we had this full uh, series available because it's kind of like a 1900s, like early 1900s version of the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, if you've seen that. Um, like just listen to these episode names. So they're mostly lost, but we do have the titles. So I'm just going to go through these. List them off. The Dagger of Dreams, The Poisoned Flower, The Mystic Mirrors, The Will of Spirit, The Fumes of Fear, The Hypnotic Clue, The Mystery Mind, The Netherworld. Also kind of sounds like Nancy Drew book titles, too. (laughs) Yeah. Invisible Destroyer, Levitation, The Fire Elemental, Elixir of Youth, Witchcraft, Suspended Animation, and The Thought Monster. What a tease just to have the episode names. Unlimited possibilities for what it could have been. It sounds really cool for 1916, though. Like, that sounds pretty badass. Very People have always been obsessed with spooky shit going all the Mm -hmm. way back to then. Yep. And as you were mentioning earlier, one influence that shines through very clearly in the cult of this film is Aleister Crowley. So the cult has this symbol they do with their hands called the sign of the devil, where they put each fist up to each cheek and then stick out their thumbs away from their face, kind of like to suggest horns. And it looks a lot like that picture of Crowley with his hands up to his face where he's kind of resting on his elbows and he's got that hat with the triangle on it. If You have to put it on the Instagram. Yeah, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And I couldn't find anything in my research that says this was an outright inspiration for what's seen in the film, but it looks so similar that, you know, they, they even have the triangles on their head and the cult and everything. I'd be very surprised if it wasn't a direct influence at the time this film was being made. 
and we will put a comparison photo on our Instagram so you guys can decide for yourself. But either way, there are a lot of occult references in this film, and Mr. Crowley was already in the public eye as an evil magician, so I'm sure they pulled a lot from him and other occultists at the time. And the, you know, it is the stories written in the whole skew of like witchcraft equals evil prejudice, which was, you know, very common view Popular. of society at the time and is still really relevant and, and prevalent to this day that, that we see that in fiction all the time. Like, Oh, witchcraft automatically equals evil Satan worship, but practicing magic does not mean you are a bad or evil person at all. It's just standardized Christian viewing that puts it there. Yep, 100%. It looks like from the stills, though, that they built a really cool set for the cult's like evil layer, and the costuming was really rad, too. Uh, there was some oh, cool, cool, dude. <laughs> cool, dude. There was some really cool uh, effects worth uh, when they're doing the astral projection. It kind of looks like their soul is like walking out of their body. And there's this point where the cult leader does uh, an astral projection, and he's like walks out, and they have this really like sunken face skull with like a drapery over it. It looks really sweet. Um, but yeah, so that one is mostly lost as, uh, as I was saying earlier. So you can only watch bits and pieces, but it's still definitely worth checking out if you're into that whole occult spiritual side of horror stuff for sure. What else we got lost in this? So the third series in 1916 is called the Crimson Stain Mystery directed by T. Hayes Hunter and written by Albert Payson Turhune and Dottie Hobart. And I think Dottie is the most early 1900s name I've ever heard. Dottie. Dottie, D-O-T-Y. Cute. So, the synopsis for The Crimson Stain Mystery. In attempting to develop a chemical which would make a person super intelligent, Dr. Montrose fails and the subjects of his experiment transform into hideous monsters and prey on humans. A young detective attempts to track down the leader of the group of killers known only to have a small crimson stain in one eye. So again, it's pointing to that whole mad scientist thing. So I think they were just all suspicious that all scientists were evil after they proved the world wasn't flat. Mm -hmm. Well, it's still a debate. It's still a debate to this day, the whole religion versus science thing. Yeah. And when religion was like, you know, the big number one thing and science was coming up, that's always been a a big fear of uh, very religious people. God damn these people questioning the stories we've had for centuries. Yeah. Seriously, like fundamental <laughs> religious people, uh, religious fundamental <laughs> religious people will be like, "God damn it! I hate those scientists." Hey, will you hand me my diabetes medicine? It's like, uh, it's kind of <laughs> ass backwards. Yeah. So this was a sixteen-episode series, and this one is completely lost. We don't even have uh, any. Uh, pictures or footage or anything. The only thing that's left is an advertisement photo from one of the episodes. And it is reported that it was not initially received well by audiences, but it still sounds cool. Uh, The premise sounds cool. And again, it is one of the first few horror series to ever exist. So worth a quick mention nonetheless. But we do have the episode titles for this one as well. So Mm, I'll do a quick run through, through those. And again, these are in order of release. So, The Brand of Satan, Mm -hmm. In the Demon Spell, The Broken Spell, seems like the demon didn't have a good spell, (laughs) 
The mysterious disappearance, the figure in black, the phantom image, the devil's symphony in the shadow of death, the haunting specter, the infernal fiend, the tortured soul, the restless spirit, despoiling brutes, the bloodhound, the human tiger, and the unmasking. Speaking of 13 ghosts, it sounds like the Black Zodiac all over again. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. So the director of this film, uh, T. Hayes Hunter, went on to direct another horror movie in 1933 starring Boris Karloff called The Ghoul. Uh, And that would have been just two years after Frankenstein. So he would already have been been a very popular guy. Uh, I haven't seen The Ghoul yet, but we may cover it when we get to 1993. I just thought it was kind of cool to mention. 93? Oh, my bad. Yeah, 1963. <laughs> I was going to say, damn. 1930. <laughs> Boris did not live that Getting long. closer every time. I can read numbers. <laughs> so this next little fact I found out is fucking mind-blowing. Are you ready for this? I don't oh, think you're ready for I, this. I don't know if I am. So Maurice Costello, he plays the lead detective in the series. Mm-hmm. First of all, he was the first person to, uh, well, he was the first person known to start a school for screen acting. So that's cool. But this is crazy. All right. Maurice Costello, Drew Barrymore is his great granddaughter. Hey, yes. Drew his Barrymore from Screen. Hot. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Family like, talent. Damn. But yeah, so I looked it up and apparently she's lived in an acting family for generations. They, yeah, just. It's been but I was like, strong tradition for generations. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> So there is the Crimson Stain mystery. And the last thing I'm going to mention for 1916 is the Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was the first adaptation of the Gaston Leroux novel, The Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> uh, this film was made in Germany, directed by Ernst Matre, and it is completely lost. We don't even have an advertisement photo nothing it's totally gone Mm. so we cannot review it or watch it or anything but it's still worth mentioning that in 1916 there was the first ever film adaptation for phantom of the opera just gotta say to all these people have you heard of a filing cabinet (laughs) like god damn it how much footage has been lost? Oh, come Not on. even in the horror genre alone. Come on, though. I lose, so my, I lose my keys in like a day, let alone losing film, a big film role in like fucking 100 just, years. Just <laughs> put it in a filing cabinet and then keep the filing what cabinet happens where when, stuff goes. What happens when the building the filing cabinet is in is burned down? Then what? You hope to God you bought a really <laughs> good filing cabinet. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> All right, so that's all we're going to talk about for 1916. Unfortunately, lots of lost stuff, but still cool that we can at least know a little bit about those very early horror series. I'm going to pass the mantle over to Haley as we move on to 1917. 1917. Then for 1917, right out the gate here, we are going to be looking at Rhapsodia Satanica, which is Satan's Rhapsody from Doctor, (laughs) Doctor, (laughs) Director, Nino Auxilia. And so we're looking at a gender-swapped version of a Faustian story, and it's just showing an old woman named Alba who's longing for her youth. So she bargains her soul over to the devil, Mephisto and renouncing love entirely for another chance at her beauty, 
only to immediately be pursued by two brothers, Sergio and Tristan, who are just determined to fuck up her promises. Mm-hmm. So, it was actually filmed in 1914, and it didn't get released until 1917. Okay. And it was all because the composer who was doing the original soundtrack, the famous Pietro Mascagni, was requesting for changes to be made to the film so the accompaniment would sound better. Hmm, okay. So he was refusing to let it be released until the film itself matched the score he put down because he didn't want to bother changing it. Wow. Stubborn guy. <laughs> it's kind of crazy because nowadays, if a musician was to try to be like, I need you to like halt the release of this movie for a few years. So <laughs> it would I be could... unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, um, excuse me, who do you think you are? John Williams? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so he put the delay on it, which ended up kind of being a pain because the guy who directed it didn't get to finish seeing the release hmm. for the movie because he died in 1917 in World War One. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> he got sent out to the battlefield and yeah, he up and got killed. So. Wow. Well, you know, making movies during wartime, I guess that'll happen. Yeah, no. Another fun thing about Mr. Auxilia, too. So, with that, he was a writer and poet and a songwriter before all of this happened. And a song that he wrote ended up being claimed by Mussolini. This was long after his death, though. And it was made into a fascist anthem. And it is the Giovenza. And the lyrics were changed once the fascist party took it. But our poor boy Auxilia never knew any of that happened. (laughs) Not his intention. This film was hand-tinted and painted, which brings a surreal romance to the whole production overall. It has an Art Nouveau-styled set and wardrobe, which just kind of brings the expressive drama together. It's considered one of the first Italian diva films. There was only one prior to it in 1913 that was also starring Lita Borelli. It was called Love Everlasting, and that was her first film. But beforehand, she was actually a renowned theatrical star. She was in tons of productions, so she was, like, the highest paid actor on this project. Yeah, that was super common, uh, especially, like, when I'm researching stuff, too. Most of the actors in these films were all stage actors first. Exactly. Because that was kind of, like, the big transition of the time is going from stage to film acting. Mm Mm-hmm. And she had such an impression overall with this film. She ended up doing like at least a dozen afterwards that were all in the same genre. Damn. Even though it's not all marked as horror, but she had a very specific style of expressionism when she was acting on camera, where she would just kind of throw her body around almost looking like dance movements. Mm-hmm. And to everyone nowadays, it looks really overexpressed and ridiculous. But when you literally have no dialogue, what you going to do like <laughs> Yeah, you gotta use your Just, body. Ah, uh, I can't scream at the top of my lungs in this film. I'll throw my body against a wall <laughs> and be dramatic. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a whole separate uh, set of skills. Like, if you can't actually use your voice, you have to use your body to tell the story. So, it's actually, you know, kind of impressive. But I, I do get that it might not be very uh, entertaining for modern audiences. But still, you know, kind of cool to just think that's how you used to have to act back in the day. And you couldn't just be like, ah, I'm scared. You had to be like, I just acted out being scared. You couldn't see it. But. Yeah, that's kind of the hard part. We don't even, all we are is a talkie. We aren't even yeah. a silent film. <laughs> yep. And then also while we're on the topic of Lita Borelli, there is one interesting fact. So she ended up retiring really shortly after this. 
She ended up retiring in 1918 because she married Count Vittorio Cini, and he was a jealous asshole. He tried buying every copy of every film she ever was in in her short career. Nowadays, we call that toxic. (laughs) Yeah. He proceeded to destroy all of them. He just bought them to destroy them. And luckily for us, there were a couple film canisters that did get saved that he just didn't get his grasp onto. That's the way we were able to watch what we did. So watch out who your partners are. (laughs) If they they don't like what you're doing, you probably shouldn't be with that person. Yeah. Nowadays, it's like, you can't post that picture on Facebook. (laughs) Well, uh, that's too damn bad. One thing I I really loved about... uh, the movie was the Satan guy. He looked really creepy. Yes, Mephisto had some really great makeup going on for him, and he also had really bright expressions. And I just love it because when you watch the movie, you can see him just in the background. Not even very big, but you can still tell it's him. Mm-hmm. He Just, just like, kind of peeping in like, hey, I love fucking your life up. Yeah, <laughs> he just pops up like every now and then when she's doing some shit with these guys that she's not supposed to be. And he's like, I told you, you're going to fuck up but I'm still going to watch this play out because you're going <laughs> to ruin it for yourself. Yep. And honestly, though, the main character in this story, her name is Alba, but she's a bitch. She, she's she a huge bitch. She is kind of a bitch. Yeah. She can't take 10 minutes just to step outside and talk to a guy, so he ends up just up and off in himself. Yeah, one of the brothers. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's like, Pretty you rough. don't love me You wouldn't ten come minutes. talk to me. Yeah, and we were talking about earlier, too, how, like, with these older films, like, death was such a casual plot point. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, you don't have a crush on me, too? I KMS. I think that's just kind of how the world recircled, because now all I see on Facebook and online is like, oh, I ran out of Doritos. KMS. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's just been a constant throughout the world. For sure. But this movie does have a lot of really stunning visuals going for it. If you do take the time to watch it, I do recommend putting a background soundtrack on yourself. Because there's only a couple random clips of the original soundtrack that you'll hear. And it's like less in total than five minutes throughout the whole movie, which is almost an hour. Yeah. So put on some ethereal spooky stuff in the background. Then you'll have a beautiful feels trip of just absolute artwork. For mm-hmm. the majority of it. Yeah, the colorization uh, that's done is really cool. There's a couple parts where they do some really cool color contrast. And it make, definitely makes it more interesting than just black and gray. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Plus all the time and effort it takes to do those hand paintings. Yeah. So many frames. So much work to do. But it definitely pulls through even hundreds of years later here. One thing I really liked about the movie, too, was after one of the brothers kills himself because Senpai isn't noticing him. (laughs) Basically, uh, she gets all, like, sad and mopey and stuff. And she does this, like, walk through, like, I don't even know. was it? It's kind of like a garden. She Mm -hmm. basically puts this, like, shroud over her. And they had this really cool, like, mirrored shot where you see her from a bunch of different angles. And then, like, death shows up on a horse or something. But I don't know. Some of those parts were really cool. I don't know how else to describe it other than like a ghostly walk through like She's in mourning. And, yeah. It looked really cool. And then that wraps up everything for Rhapsodia Satanica. So going to be passing it over to you. What do you got for us? 
All right. So for 1917, the film I covered, we're keeping it satanic, people. I'm covering Satan. Satan triumphant. It is a two-part Russian film directed by Yakov Protazanov and written by Olga Blazevich. In this movie, Pastor Talnax urges his flock to fight temptations while later becoming a victim of temptation himself when the devil visits him disguised as an injured man and plays a magical song on piano that forces all who hear it to sin. It's that damn rock and roll music I've rock been telling music. y'all. Just makes kids horny, goddammit. Kids these days, damn it. <laughs> and it's yes. a good example of practice what you preach, because... He does not follow through very well. Mm-hmm. It is essentially just a story about how even the holiest of all people can not be completely free from sin. Everyone sins. That's kind of the moral, I think. But it's also the moral of, like, don't have sex because <laughs> this movie gets real saucy. Lots of sexual tension going on. Mm-hmm. So if you choose to watch this movie, I'm going to give you a heads up here. So there is a virgin... A virgin. There is a version <laughs> on YouTube that has English closed captions, but you have to go to auto, what's the auto translate or whatever, and then select English. Otherwise, it's only Spanish. And that but, does not help on a Russian film if you speak neither Russian or, or Spanish. Spanish. Yes. So that's how you can get the English for the uh, intertiles there with the Russian text. The runtime is uh, an hour and 27 minutes between both parts. And like a lot of other feature films at the time, it does feel pretty slow in some parts, kind of drags on a little bit. But the moments where it really gets going are pretty fun. So let's go over some of those. In part one, when Satan comes to visit Pastor Talnox, his late wife's sister, and her husband, we see him transform into a human outside from his demonic form. With some fabulous hair. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Fabulous fucking hair. The actor who plays Satan is named Alexander Chabrov, and he is one of those people who already has a... It's kind of hard to describe, but he has a very naturally, like, creepy and menacing face and expressions kind of thing. He already looks kind of skeevy. But when they add the Satan makeup, he definitely looks pretty evil for sure. But they put his fucking hair up in horn. Like, instead of getting horn uh, prosthetics or whatever, making them. I don't know how they would have done that back then. But instead of doing that, they literally just fucking use his hair like Ace Ventura straight up. (laughs) Like, it looks pretty funny, but did they even have hair gel in 1917? Well, I mean, yeah, because you have to be able to smooth your Do you just have to use fucking, like, egg yolk or something? It's oils. Hair (laughs) oils. So, he transforms into a human and pretends to have a sprained ankle so they will invite him in. And this is one of the earliest uses of the, quote, evil has to be invited in trope that we see in a lot of, like, horror uh, vampire movies and you know stories and stuff like that to be clear it was already a common idea in culture that you had to like invite a vampire into your house or it couldn't enter and stuff like that but this is an earliest example of that trope in film specifically so kind of cool Satan ends up staying the night with them and he begins to start all kinds of trouble by planting some very naughty ideas in their heads just hey 
your dead wife's sister looks pretty hot today, right? Hey, you should all bang each other. And it's, so, you might think we're exaggerating, but no, that, that's, that's literally yeah. what's happening the so, whole time. Yeah. He starts to hit on the pastor's dead wife's sister, getting her all riled up. Then he starts telling the pastor that he should be with her instead of her hunchback husband. So everyone starts getting all fucking horny and it causes all kinds of weird sexual tension in the group. And there is a scene where the wife goes into her room alone and undoes the top few buttons of her blouse. You and can see her, her neck. You can see her neck. How insightful. But yeah, so she's like rubbing her chest while she imagines her infidelity. Ooh. And I imagine this was a very risque thing to put in a film at the time. People I, probably left the theater and being be like, oh my God, you could see her wrists. The audacity. But in, <laughs> in whatever Russian version of that sounds like. Later, the still disguised Satan sits at a piano in their home, begins to play, and it sounds like the most beautiful song they have ever heard in their lives. And for soundtracking, I would like to vote Jerry Lee Lewis' Great Balls of Fire to be placed over. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely what he's playing for sure. It is so hypnotizing that they all gather around him at the piano and ask him, What song is this? What is it called? And he says the hymn of the triumphant and starts to write down the sheet music little do they know this song is actually an evil spell that will force them to sin and i fucking love this idea it could be just because i'm a musician but (laughs) satan using magic as an evil spell to control people is just such a cool idea in my in my opinion using music for the devil's work yep anyway After they all hear the song, they do this really cool effect where the actors have makeup on their eyes and kind of down their noses a little bit here and there. It's kind of like, I don't know, like a gothic contour kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Shadowing makes them look kind of sultry and spooky. Yes. And as they succumb more and more to Satan, the makeup gets darker and thicker, which I thought was a really creative choice and really kind of accentuates this feeling of them being like kind of cursed or haunted by the devil i'd say it's definitely a prototype for what you would consider traditional goth makeup oh yeah it's quite a look it's really good I if like you it. buy your makeup from hot topic you're not actually goth you have to just rub your fucking dirt on your face <laughs> excuse me i prefer charcoal thank you very much wow fake goth fake goth <laughs> fake goth alert wee you wee you So after listening to the song, the sister now rejects her husband as she yearns for the pastor. I guess that satanic music was really getting ladies going even long before the 80s. The pastor starts to lose his faith entirely and now prays to a portrait of Satan that he stole. His dead wife's sister eventually gives in and they bang in front of the portrait. Mm -hmm. That's pretty metal. And... The husband, the poor husband, gets totally cucked. They go out to the store, and the pastor and his wife are holding hands. As the husband's just trailing behind them directly, seeing everything that's going on. Not saying that it's weird or anything like that. He's just like, oh, huh, I guess that's normal. It's pastor. It's fine. No big deal. So for the rest of part one, the film is lost, but we do know what happens from accounts of the movie basically the hunchback husband sees the pastor and the sister kissing while he's above them on a balcony and he's so shocked that he falls off and lands on the pastor killing both of them what a circumstance though. 
just yeah. uh, using yourself as a human <laughs> torpedo to take <laughs> out your target. Yeah, you want to have sex with my wife? And just fucking <laughs> tornadoes, dude. <laughs> yep. And then part two is pretty simple. It takes place in the future after the sister and the pastor's child has grown up and he's become a famous musician. And he finds this sheet music that Satan wrote for the hymn of the triumphant. He plays it and the devil awakens in his soul. And the mom's just like, oh, God yeah, damn they, it, not this again. They do the same fucking Ace Ventura fucking horns with the hair it's kind of funny but he goes to a dance club and he plays the hymn of the triumphant and a woman dances herself to death then the mother finds the portrait of satan that they fucked under burns it and satan is defeated kind of like dorian gray throwback again there oh yeah Just, there's... hey if there's a portrait burn it yeah <laughs> it'll solve you go, all your problems if you go back and watch these older films there's so much dorian gray influence in all of them it's insane but it makes sense it was a very early uh very kind of creepy popular story that went around at the time for sure mm-hmm I could not really find much information on the film in English as it was made in Russia, but I did find one little factoid that I thought was kind of funny. The actor who plays Satan, Alexander Chabrov, later went on to become a priest. Huh. And I think that might have been a little awkward to find this movie after going to his <laughs> church and being like, hey, you're actually Satan. He was repenting. <laughs> he felt guilty. Yeah. But all of this begs the question. I have a question for you. If one song out of all the songs in the world would force people to commit sin when they hear it, what song would it be? That's the way I like it. KC and the Sunshine Band. No question. Game over. That's the way. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. As I'm murdering people, I like it. (laughs) Uh uh (laughs) Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because, I mean, how could you not just get down with that? It has... Every principle of a great song. True. I would do the devil's bidding to that song any day of the week, any hour, any minute. Yes. Promise. My choice is Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath, because that (laughs) sounds like an evil spell to me, that whole song. All right. That is all I have for Satan Triumphant. And we are now moving on to Haley's next movie. Go ahead and, and, and take it away, Haley. Another batter from 1917. We're looking at first, first, which is going to be fear in yes. German. First. <laughs> it was directed by Robert Wiener. And Wiener? Wiener. Wiener. <laughs> Google may have not done me well on that, but my friend in Germany didn't respond fast enough. So <laughs> here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so just to kind of give you a premise of the story, what we've summed up here is, After years of traveling the world, Count Grevin returns home with the treasure he has collected, but something haunts him. Will he suffer or be freed from his paranoia? Oh my gosh, (laughs) that sounds so scary, I don't think I can watch it. Well, honestly, it's not that scary, but... We are going to be mentioning it just because Robert Vina did go on to be best known for his 1920 expressionist classic, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of one of those stepping stones that's important, at least for his career, because it's not his big hit of a film, but it still keeps really good suspense and thrills when you're going through it. And it does have a surprise kind of twist at the ending that you don't see coming. 
So Fear is actually a great show of anxious paranoia. Even though it's not classified quite as a horror film, the entire time you're on the edge of your seat just in suspense about what may be happening next, the main character throughout the entire plot is just in absolute fear. And then he has something come upon him and it's like, you have seven years to live or else. So you better live this out as best as you can. Do whatever you want. And then you will be killed by the thing you love most. So he prepares to just commit absolute debauchery, like the entire time going forward from there. But yep. you never know what's going to be around the corner. And it's kind of almost an example of those early exploration films, kind of like Indiana Jones, things like that, like you were saying the other day. Yeah. And just don't take things that aren't yours. If you find something in an ancient ruin or a temple or a wishing well, just just leave it. It's not yours. Don't touch it. You will get cursed or some other bad shit will happen to you. Yep. A <laughs> a man will come find you and be like, yo, you stole my statue, though. And now you're not going to die for like seven years because I want you to live in constant fear mm-hmm. as I watch you. And he can like astral project and shit. And he comes in this house all creepy and invisible. One cool thing I did find, though, while doing my research is that it is debated among film critics if this actually happened or not. So, with the way you watch the film, if you look closely, no one else seems to really react when things do happen besides the main character. There will be other Mm. people around, but there's no reaction from them. Yeah, and his one friend, when he's explaining that, hey, I stole this statue and there's this crazy invisible guy trying to get it back he's like, his other friends like need a yeah we don't need a what does he say he's like it's like we don't need a police officer we need a doctor this yeah. guy's going crazy yeah so i uh, yeah that makes sense it could have all just been some fucking paranoia exactly so that's just kind of one big debate among everyone but with that movie it's definitely just a suspense factor and the ending i will say i think is worth it to get through It's not the most exciting movie. There's not really any fun camera angles or bright use of tinting. Mm -hmm. But it's worth the couple minutes it is. I have a life hack for you guys. If you choose to go watch these on YouTube, did you know, did you remember that you can change the playback speed? It is a (laughs) lifesaver, especially if you're like me and have to rewatch things a couple times before it sets in your head. Mm-hmm. But just play it back faster and voila, you've seen the whole thing. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's mostly we're just kind of mentioning it because Vina did go on to uh, make cabinets. So it's kind of just cool to show that he was on the scene making films before that classic came out. And it's insane that that movie, I'm excited for when we get to 1920 and can talk about it in depth. But uh, it's insane that that movie is 101 years old and you still have to buy it on YouTube. Like you can't just, it's not just like on YouTube. Like no these. public domain. Yeah, it's it was pretty crazy. Cult classic. Mm-hmm. One of the earliest, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. And that's all here. What do we have next? So for the last movie in 1917, I will be covering The Devil's Assistant. Directed by Harry A. Pollard and written by J. Edward Hungerford. 
In The Devil's Assistant, a physician enacts revenge on the woman he loves after she marries another man by treating her exhaustion with maddening drugs. The film depicts her descent into madness with a trip to hell itself. The only version available online right now is a 15-minute cut that has a big watermark on it that says preview the whole time. And it interferes heavily when you're trying to read the actual title cards. You do kind of have to pause it sometimes to see what it says, but it's still worth a watch if you can put up with it. There is a version available on DVD that's like a full playthrough of it. doesn't have any watermarks or anything, but I really want to get it, but I don't have it right now or anything. So we're just going to have to do with what we got. Right away, one aspect that stands out for this film this is a very early entry into the mad scientist subgenre of horror. Another one. Another, Another one. one. Of course, Frankenstein was basically the progenitor of the mad scientist trope and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as well, which both had films made before this one, which we did cover in the first few episodes if you want to <laughs> learn more. Mm -hmm. Go check those out. But the big difference with this film is it is not based on a book. Whereas Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were. So this was the first film, at least that I'm able to find, that takes a totally original take on the kind of mad scientist trope. So, very cool. The film starts out at the wedding of Marta and John, and we are introduced to all our main characters with a short shot of them, and then an intertile with their name and a short backstory on them. It feels a little bit like a full house kind of intro, you know, like everywhere you look, everywhere <laughs> you go kind of thing. But uh, with these silent films, I can sometimes have a hard time differentiating all the characters, especially when there's a lot of them. Cause when I can't like hear voices, my mind kind of mixes people up a little more. But with this one, the way they did this intro with the short shot and introductions and everything made it really easy to follow. It also does say their exact character dynamics, which yeah. was rare for the time, but also very, very helpful. Because then you're not just sitting there like, why? Like, why is any of this happening? <laughs> yeah. It's very specific. Mm -hmm. We are first introduced to Marta Van Dyne, the host of the party or the wedding, then John Lane, heir to his father's millions, and he is the husband of the wedding. Then Dr. Lorenz, a rising physician who is in love with Marta. And lastly, Marion Brooks, Marta's best friend who has always secretly loved John. So, couple of crossing wires here. Already an interesting love dynamic going on. During the wedding ceremony, Dr. Lorenz watches jealously, and as he gets more angry, devil horns appear on his head. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. That boy got the demon in him. That's why you gotta speak up if you have feels, not at someone's wedding. Yeah. But I mean, that also goes for her best friend, because I mean, come on, you didn't bother to be like, hey, um, excuse me, that's the boy I've had a crush on for years, and um, you knew that, um... You, excuse me, not? taps on shoulder, excuse me, senpai, <laughs> notice me. That seems like a recurring theme in these early years. It's either romance, death, suicide, war. Yeah, basically. 
Some time passes after the wedding, and Dr. Lorenz has become a, quote, soulless caterer to the thrills of the idle rich, and he toils away above his cauldron of chemicals and sees visions of demons in hell within the smoke of his evil concoction. Just then, the phone rings. It is Marion, calling to say that Marta has had a relapse and needs something to quiet her nerves. We don't know what she's actually having a relapse of. It just says she has exhaustion, which I think is kind of an antiquated term for, like, there's something wrong and we don't know. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know. But he's basically just like, well, you're in luck because I just finished making Satan's acid. So I'll head over right now and administer some. So he gives her the drug and she becomes compliant to his every wish. Don't take drugs from your exes. Nope, don't first, do that. First big no in the book here. Mm-hmm. He steals her away after getting her under his influence and has a driver take them into a far away cabin. They drive through a dark and rainy night as lightning flashes overhead. And I really like the lightning they did. It's like... For the time, it still stands up. I think they did a pretty good job with making the like lightning cracks and stuff. The driver stays outside while the doctor and Marta enter the cabin. He kisses her, and after their lips touch, she awakens from the effects of the drug. She fights him off and cowers in the corner, and lightning flashes in through the window as we see short strobes of her terrified expression and the doctor's evil grimace. As their struggle comes to a head, lightning strikes the cabin, and the building collapses all around them. At this point, the driver quickly rushes back home to tell John what has happened to his wife. In the rubble, we see Marta's body, and her soul stands up out of her corpse. And then, a skeleton on a white horse comes to embrace her. And I really like the skeleton they did in this. It looks like actual bones, like a just a straight-up skeleton rather than, like, a guy in a skeleton onesie. Mm-hmm. Like, the lighting they did and everything with that worked really good. The skeleton takes her across the river sticks, and as they pass through the water, tortured souls reach up to grab them. We then see souls being tortured by fire along a mountainside. And the hell scenes are very reminiscent of Dante's Inferno, which we covered in the previous episode. And I would not be surprised if this film was directly inspired by Dante's Inferno. The takes on like the vision of hell they did were very similar to that 1911 classic. As they get further into hell, Marta sees Cerberus, the three-headed dog. He's the the cutest fucking thing in this whole goddamn movie. That's the only reason I bring it up because it's literally just a golden retriever with two fake heads. On its back, and it is so cute. He's basically just like, Hi guys, welcome to hell. I'm so glad you're here. Will you throw a bone for me? <laughs> it's pretty great. And we should certainly make some Cerberus heads for bugs. Yes. 100%. Our My dog has merited dog. them. He has earned each head <laughs> individually. 100% with his fucking chomps of death. No, I love that little guy. So, the skeleton again tries to embrace her, and she struggles and tries to fight him off, only to wake up in John's arms and realize it was all just a bad trip, and the doctor's dead body in the rubble lays below. I gotta say, though, John really dropped the ball, because meanwhile, while all this is happening, he's just chilling with her best friend, and her best friend is, like, shooting her shot, because she helped plot all this out with the doctor. Mm So she's just like, hey, like, you can run off with her because you love her. And, like, I'll just stay here with him. 
So don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And John does not resist this. He's just sitting there playing mm-hmm. with her arms and yeah. well, getting there is cozy. A, there is a certain symmetry to it, you know, now that the doctor and Marta are alone, then John and Marion are. It's still yeah. wrong, John yeah. and Marion. For sure. So that's about the uh, summation of the film. One small detail I thought was awesome about the uh, intertiles was the unique artwork they made for almost every text screen. And I think it was a very creative choice for the time that would have made the movie stand out and was a way to add to the narrative and the visuals of the story uh, in a really cool way, rather than just using a bland like back. Uh, back a backdrop with just letters and stuff like they actually did unique art for example when she first takes the medicine it cuts to an intertile that says in the web and the art behind the text is a grim reaper figure at the center of a spider's web so she's kind of like caught in death's trap yeah pretty cool i couldn't really find anything about the production of the film itself That is a very common thing with these old movies. There's not a whole lot of information on the production process, but I was able to find out that all four stars of the film went on to have long, fruitful careers and making lots of films. Margarita Fisher, who plays Marta, and was also Larry A. Pullard's wife, the director, so they were married. She went on to star in Universal Films, and one of them was even directed by Lois Weber. If you remember from the previous episode, she did Suspense. And uh, it was actually one of the first few movies to be a talkie, one of the talkies, as they were called when it uh, first started, coming around when they had sound. And uh, Monroe Salisbury, who plays the Doctor, was also a very successful actor. Went on to be in use, uh, went on to be in Universal Films as well. And like the last movie he made was a movie with sound. So starting to see these actors in this weird bridging period where they get really famous in the silent film era. And then once the talkies or the films with sound come around, they just drop off because they. That it's just not the same skill set anymore. The whole premise of one of my favorite musicals, Singing in the Rain. Shout out Gene Kelly. Shout out. (laughs) Overall, I really enjoyed this film because I think you can see that they went the extra mile with a lot of the effects and the artwork they did. Uh, And I think the premise is pretty scary, too. I do not like the idea of an insane doctor giving me Satan acid without telling me. It is not cool, bro. Plus, if you are a fan of the mad scientist genre, then this is an awesome movie to check out and see some of the very early roots of that subgenre. <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap it up for 1917. We're going to move on to the next year. Hey, Lee, start us off for <laughs> 1918. 1918. We're going to be looking at 1918, a film called The Eyes of the Mummy, directed by an Ernst Lubitsch. You said it wrong. You got to be like, the. Eyes of the, the mummy. <laughs> but our synopsis here. A girl is kidnapped and held captive in an ancient Egyptian temple. She's rescued and flees to England, but soon finds that her mysterious captor is still haunting her. <sighs> so this is going to be the first and only thriller drama of Mr. Lubitsch's whole career. And... He made quite a lot of movies, actually. He went on to get some fame of his own in the end. But 
This one in particular was kind of a bigger Kickstarter because it was out of his normal. He usually directed comedies and love stories. Hmm. And he was renowned for that. He just begged the studio, like, hey, can I please do something kind of scary? Like, you know, just a little jump scare, like anything. They're like, okay, Lubitsch, I guess we'll just let you do this. Go on, go get your people, call it good. But his leading lady that he usually had in his films was not up to the challenge of doing a more serious film. So he had to recruit a new face to his scene. That was going to be Pola Negri. And she ended up bringing a really sultry touch to one of our main characters named Ma. And my thing with all of this, though, there isn't a mummy in this whole fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Briefly, you see a sarcophagus with eye holes poked in it. I will say that part was really cool. <laughs> it was really cool. It is kind of weird because in the very beginning of the movie, they're all kind of hanging out in a marketplace or whatever. And there's a guy that the main character goes and talks to that is reported to have like seen the mummy or something. The eyes, the eyes are alive. The eyes are alive. And then he pretty much just passes out and he's just like, yeah. So it's like there, there is kind of a hint of like the curse of the mummy kind of thing. But yeah, there's really not much, uh, much of any kind of mummy in the movie. (laughs) No, but what you do get to see is this large male chilling outside of this temple. His character's name is Radu, but he's played by Emil Jannings. Yeah, and he ended up he's just being dude. in he's blackface. Dude. And there's a whole lot that we're going to have to discuss about him in the near future here. Hmm. But his Radu character supposedly has hypnotic powers. And it goes to a flashback of him seeing this girl by the stream side. She's just minding her damn business, cleaning her laundry as one does. And he pretty much just runs down to her, tries talking to her, and being like, hey, hey, you busy? You, you want to hang out? And she's like, oh, no, 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 thanks. And he's like, well, that's too bad, and picks her up and throws her on his horse. <laughs> and drags that poor horse back and forth through the mud for a painstakingly long amount of time for yeah. no reason. It is funny because they, they say he's like a, a hypnotist, but he literally <laughs> just grabs her and throws her on the horse. He's like, I really like the idea of someone who claims to be a hypnotist, <laughs> but they're like, I'm hypnotizing you right now. Is it working? And they're like, no. Well, I'm going to hypnotize you with my fists. <laughs> get on this horse. You up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Doesn't even toss her onto the horse properly, like just throws her over the side. But... You see that he brings her back to this temple and, like, lays her down in a room and proceeds to kind of grope her really creepily. Like, I will say he's, like, the most rapey antagonist I've seen in any of our movies so far. Yeah, she's quite rapey. Like, it's uncomfortable. But, so, he throws her down here and he's like, you will succumb to all of my wills. You will do whatever I ask of you and you will never leave me. And so... What actually has been happening while all these other tourists are like, ah, oh, the curse of the mummy. Ah, it's actually just this girl named Ma. And she's just chilling behind the sarcophagus. And whenever he knocks on the temple, she knows people are coming. Mm-hmm. So she'll go close her eyes. And then once they get closer, she'll pop them open. They freak out. Then they'll get into a fight and kind of a trance with Radu. But... This ends up going a bit awry when an English traveler comes by. He ends up noticing the eyes open, and then Radu tries attacking him, and he honestly just kind of nudges him off, and all of a sudden, Radu dramatically throws himself onto the sand and is rendered unconscious. Hmm. 
Then Traveler just kind of scoops up Ma and is like, oh, like there's a person back here. Cute. And he's like, you're coming to England with me. And takes her on off. And from there, it kind of goes into like Pygmalion where it's like, ah, foreign girl has to learn English manners. Ah, ha, ha. Here you go. There is a very cute cat, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's trying to like, they're trying to teach her lessons and stuff. And she's like, nah, fuck that. I'm just going to play with this kitten. <laughs> But it is also an early example of an interracial love story going on. Mm-hmm. And it's overall well accepted by all of the main character's English peers. But Radu, who passed out on the sand, ends up getting picked up by another English traveler. And becomes pretty much a servant because he's like, oh, you saved my life. I'll follow you anywhere. And then he discovers that Ma has gone off to England as well. And he vows vengeance against the woman that did him wrong. And becomes the creepiest stalker. How dare you not let me hypnotize you into a sex slave? <laughs> How dare! So, he proceeds to just creepily find his way into her life for the rest of the movie. And there's a lot of suspense that goes on throughout it. Just because you never know when he is going to show up and when he isn't going to show up. And it kind of plays with that idea of astral projection again. Mm-hmm. Because we just see his soul kind of traveling through walls. Yeah, into when totally she's like sleeping places. or something, he like comes to her bed and stuff. And he's all invisible looking. Yep, and her health begins to decline. She does gain her own fame during this time in England, though, as a renowned belly dancer. And mm-hmm. it ends up getting to her head as she's also being randomly hypnotized at a distance. And her health just... I'm hypnotizing you. Beep. Is it working? <laughs> I'm hypnotizing you. Actually, I just passed out from exhaustion. Could you please stop staring (laughs) at me so long? But with that, we do get towards the ending scenes where there is a very dramatic early use of stunts, but there was no stuntman. Our girl Paula actually ended up throwing herself down a eight stack flight of stairs. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And it was not with Mr. Lubitsch's permission, mind you. He was like, hey... Like, yeah, his permission. 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 (laughs) But she was like, okay, I can do this. It's fine. I've danced my whole life. I'm used to falling. I'll just toss myself down these stairs. He's like, no, I might need you for retakes. Like, just stay there. Just fall. Just collapse onto the floor. You'll be fine. And then Jannings was like, okay, yeah, just fall. I'll catch you. I got you. I'm the bad guy. We can do this. She's like, oh, okay. And they're like, okay, rolling camera. One, two, action. And he stabs her. And then she drastically just chucks herself down this flight of stairs and lands head first. Yeah. She, into the ground. She had to have been fucking bruised up for sure. Yeah. Like, she just fucking fell on these stairs hard. And the director immediately started freaking out behind the scenes. Like, why did you let her do that? Oh my god, you're supposed to catch her, you idiot. <laughs> and he's just like, what did you think? I didn't know what she was going to do. Why did you hire this crazy pole? And then (laughs) (laughs) from there, things just kind of went all over. So she ended up actually going on to have quite a famous role forward from there. She became more renowned for playing virgins and vampires after this film, though, just because she did have that sultry kind of like, I don't know, just that dark aesthetic look. virgin vampire (laughs) look. (laughs) Yeah. I think I rocked that look for a long time. (laughs) But 
She was actually one of the first Polish actors to ever get a Hollywood contract in the U.S. So that's cool. Girl power. All me. Here's the more problematic part. Our director, Mr. Lubitsch, happened to be Jewish. Fine and dandy. But Mr. Emil Jannings, our villain in the movie, Radu, he was a German man. Lubitsch is a German man. And at this time, it was quite controversial. Mm-hmm. World War I. So, <sighs> Emil's career ended up taking off after this movie. He actually ended up being the first person ever nominated as a best actor in a leading role for an Oscar. Oh, wow. There's rumor behind it, though, that initially everyone wanted to vote for Rin Tin Tin, the dog, the German <laughs> shepherd. Instead of him. Wow. But people kind of speculate that that might have been more of a joke among the Academy. Mm-hmm. So Jannings ended up getting this Oscar. And he was very proud of it. He took it back to Germany with him and it was like, hey, like, this is mine. I'm great. I'm the shit. Yes. And to this day, he's actually still the only German person that's won the best actor in a leading role position. There's been other people nominated that are German. But he's mm-hmm. the only one that's won. But the Academy has almost erased completely the fact that he won the 1921 Academy, eh, 1929 Academy Awards. Wow. On this one fact, based on 1933, he decided to certify his alliance in court to the Nazi party. Oh. So he just full on signed up with Goebbels and he was like, hey, you'd be a great propaganda actor for the Fuhrer. Like, join us. And Jannings was like, oh my god, financial security, and I would be super famous in Germany? Yeah, why not? Even though he was already famous in the US. Damn. So, he made up this whole backstory about himself, that he was a bastard child of an Aryan, and that he was just full-on, like, happily German, even though his mother was from Russia, and she had Jewish heritage. Wow. So people speculate maybe he was trying to protect his mom, but he went on to star in many propaganda films. He is even mentioned in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. He is a character in it. Oh, shit. Okay. So, <laughs> unfortunately in that movie, though, it was a fictional kind of deal for how everything ended. He ended up dying in the movie theater. Didn't actually happen that way. This guy ended up getting blacklisted from Hollywood once the war was over, and he ended up dying as an alcoholic in shame. Wow. Because he signed all his allegiances to the wrong people. Yeah, no And he never dumb. tried backtracking what he had done. Damn. So. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, I had no idea the fucking story went that far down with him. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Mr. Jannings is a bad man. Used blackface on camera. Yeah. And it, it backs itself up when you learn all that information about him. Yeah. Not good. Well, <laughs> that is nuts. So, for 1918, I do have some honorable mentions because they are lost films, but they still sound pretty nuts. So, I'm going to pronounce this the best I can. This is a German word. A-L-R-A-U-N-E. Alron. Alron. There's like a in there somewhere. I don't know how to actually say it, but it is uh, called Alron. And there's actually two movies, a German version and a Hungarian version, both made in 1918, and both of them are lost. 
The first one, the German one, is directed by Eugene Isles and Joseph Klein. A mad scientist, Dr. Ten Brinken, artificially inseminates a prostitute with the semen of a dead man. Jesus Christ. The resulting child grows up to be a beautiful but evil woman who turns against her creator. So this film is not totally lost. There is still an incomplete and censored form available to view at the George Eastman House uh, archives, but there's nothing for it on the internet. So that is why it is in the honorable mention slot. Cannot watch it, but it still sounds pretty fucking crazy. Brutal. Um, Then the Hungarian version that was also made in this year, directed by Michael Kurtz and Edmund Fritz, in this variation of the Alron legend, a mad scientist creates a beautiful but demonic child from the forced union between a woman and a mandrake root. That sounds kind of painful. Yeah. So. Like mandrake, like the little things from Harry Potter. Well, not. <laughs> in real life, mandrake roots, you pull them out of the ground and they, they kind of. They're like human shaped. They don't make a sound or anything. They're a plant. But. They, they, that's what the, those in Harry Potter is based on, the Mandrake Root. It's been uh. a very, uh, center piece for a lot of witchcraft practices and stuff, because it kind of looks like a person. It's like an idol kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and while both variations of these, uh, Alron films are based on the 1911 book with the same title written by the German novelist Hans Heinz Ewers, the legend of Alron dates all the way back to the Middle Ages in Germany. The humanoid shaped mandrake root was believed to be produced by the semen of hanged men under the gallows. Alchemists claimed that hanged men ejaculated after their necks broke and the earth absorbed their final essence. Just gotta bust that one last nut before you go. <laughs> yes. Nice final release. Mm-hmm. It was also <laughs> believed that witches who, quote, made love to the mandrake root would produce offspring that had no feeling of love and had no soul. So this legend goes all the way back to the early, like, alchemists and witchcraft beliefs. Um, but I just thought that these premises both sound really fucked up and pretty horrific. And I would love to have a chance to see maybe that archive version someday. But the Hungarian one is totally lost, so we can only speculate on it. But either they're putting dead semen in people or they're having a woman fuck a plant or something. It all sounds very nuts. But it's actually, if you kind of look at it from... The, the way that they're talking about that it creates like this loveless, soulless being. It's almost a very early telling of the Frankenstein idea, like creating a person out of nothing. Kind and, of the homunculus thing you were talking about earlier as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, it goes uh, even deeper into like all these artificial man things, uh, these movies that came out later on. So you could even yeah. say the early roots of the uncanny valley. The uncanny valley. One yep. thing that actually fucking scares me. <laughs> yeah, not a huge fan of that either. So that is going to do it for the episode today, folks. As per usual, we are going to be posting images and clips from the films we discussed today on our Insta and the Facebook. So just search Fear of the Year podcast on either of those platforms and we will pop right up for you. 
Be sure to check out all the other shows on the Circle Pit Radio Network, started by the lovely, the one and only, Des Des Troy Troy of Disengaged. If you haven't listened to Disengaged yet, you are truly missing out, and I wish a curse upon both you and your family until you do. Wow. Just kidding, just kidding. Just listen that, to them. That's pretty intense. I'm just joking, but just joking, joshing around. Sagalog but seriously, Salud will visit you in your sleep if you do not listen to Disengaged. Yeah, seriously, listen to them. If you can uh, go to circlepitradio.com, we'd appreciate it. Check out all the other shows, give them a listen, see if it's something that you can vibe with. So before we close out today's episode, I would like to leave you with the horror quote of the day. This one is in the Mad Scientist theme. Everybody is a mad scientist, and life is their lab. We're all trying to experiment, to find a way to live, to solve problems, to fend off madness and chaos. David Cronenberg. You fucking weird guy, Cronenberg. Good <laughs> Thank quote, you. Though so much for listening to today's episode and we will see you next year wow.